So Money Episode 197, Jeff Yeager, The Ultimate Cheapskate. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Hey, welcome back to So Money, everyone. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. What's your definition of cheap? I'm curious. Do you think that you're cheap or someone you know is cheap? Perhaps the person you're living with? Uh, I got into trouble once because I went on ABC News and the topic was cheap versus frugal and they wanted my opinion. So I went on a limb and I said that, um, you know, from my perspective, I think frugal is great. Frugal is sort of savvy spending. It's a wise, thoughtful approach to spending your money and managing your money. Cheap, on the other hand, means you're wasting time and energy to save money. It's sometimes being inconsiderate. It's sometimes being rude, harmful in the pursuit of saving money. And as an example, maybe an extreme example, I mentioned that you know some forms of extreme couponing Uh, I think, exemplify this. And boy, did that get the couponers mad. I got so much hate mail. I literally had clusters of couponers coming at me on Facebook and Twitter and personal email. It was it was actually, I was like, wow, the power of the media. People are watching ABC. Uh, but at the same time, I was like, what did I What did I say? I must have really um, made them angry. And then it was that they just didn't like that the idea of couponing being equated to something that was uh, quote unquote cheap. And so, of course, not all couponing is bad. Um, but I know there are people out there who spend hours a day cutting coupons and all they have to show for it is like $20 or $30 saved which isn't insignificant, but when you account for all that time and the energy and maybe the fact that you were cutting coupons while your kid wanted some help with his science project, I don't know, I'm making this up, but that might happen. And in that scenario, that's not frugal, that's cheap. And if you're going to hate me for saying that, I'll take it. Which brings me to today's guest, Jeff Yeager, dubbed the ultimate cheapskate by Matt Lauer on NBC's Today Show, specializes in teaching others how to spend smart so that they can spend less and live frugally. He's also an accomplished author of several books on the topic, including Don't Throw That Away, The Cheapskate Next Door, and The Ultimate Cheapskate's Roadmap to True Riches. He hosts The Cheap Life on YouTube, which also provides video content about living the good life at a fraction of the cost. And if you're an AARP member, you might recognize his name. He's one of their savings experts. And before launching his career as a freelance writer, public speaker, and media personality, Jeff spent 24 years working as a CEO and senior executive with national nonprofit organizations in Washington, D.C. And during this time, he strictly managed his finances, realizing that he was able to reduce his dependency on money to the point that he could retire if he wanted. And it was then that he made the conscious choice to change careers since he didn't have to worry about his paycheck. Now, Jeff also likes to call this the day he became selfishly employed. Jeff used his newfound financial freedom to pursue a career in writing and multimedia journalism to help others learn to live with less. And since then, he's been on major media outlets, including the Today Show, CNN, Fox, CNBC, and countless others. Several takeaways from our conversation with Jeff. His take on the word cheap. How do you define cheap? And why does it get a bad rap? 
what would enough, and I'm putting enough in air quotes, look like for you? What does enough money mean? And Jeff's breakthrough career moment, which was not unlike mine. So we share some things in common. Here we go. Here is Jeff Yeager. Jeff Yeager, welcome to So Money, a uh, some you're the person that my guests have wanted to hear from many times. I've been getting lots of emails. Let's get Jeff Yeager on So Money, and so happy to say here you are. Thanks for joining us. Hey, well, thanks so much for having me on. I'm a big fan of uh, yours, and I and I know that among your audience members are many loyal brothers and sisters of the cheap coat. <laughs> so I'm honored to be on the show today. Yeah, let's start with the word cheap. You know, culturally, this is something that um, it, it sends a visceral reaction. You know, people think, oh, cheap, man, this is like a, an awful person, someone who has no moral grounds, who's mean, rude, um, will do anything to save a buck. Uh, what is your definition of cheap, Jeff? I'm glad you brought that up uh, first because sometimes I forget to address it. I'm known as the ultimate cheapskate, and I very specifically chose the word cheapskate uh, to really engage people's imagination and interest in what is ultimately a very important uh, conversation. I should say I've written four books, all of which have a degree of humor to them. So I have a lot of laughs at the notion of being cheap at my own expense, but I don't mean to cheapskate in the traditional Scrooge-like uh, uh, sense. The, the, the people that I write about are really black belts of smart spending. Um, they're, by the way, very generous individuals. So they're they're not dishonest. They're not greedy. They're not focused on trying to amass a big bank account. They've really figured out what money has to do with life and happiness and get on with it. So I don't use it in a pejorative sense. I mean, call us frugal. I never use the F word myself. Call us frugal. <laughs> They call us thrifty spenders, call us smart consumers. We're actually folks who are less concerned about money than most Americans. We figured out what uh, is important to us life uh, in life, and we get on about it. Mm-hmm. I like that, financial black belts. Yes. Uh, as I like to say, I, I don't write books about how to get rich, um, and that makes my books a little bit unusual in the personal finance uh, realm because most personal finance books are about how to get rich. I write books about how to get happy, perhaps with what you already have. And let's uh, let's start with your journey to getting happy with what you have. You were working in the court in the in. Nine to five for many years in DC. You were working for nonprofit organizations. Um, you decided it just, you got to a point where you decided this isn't for me. This isn't what's making me happy. How did you ultimately make the transition and um, what was your goal? You know, I, I like to think I approach this from a different perspective as mo- from most personal finance uh, writers because I spent 25 years, and, and by the way, I did enjoy those 25 years as a CEO and senior executive managing national nonprofit organizations in Washington, D.C. So, you know, most personal finance writers come from it from the point of view of investment banking or, or um, fund management or certified financial planners. That's not me. I write only about the spending side of personal finance. And a lot of uh, the wisdom, I hopefully impart, it comes from that 25-year career in the nonprofit sector. And, you know, when you think about a nonprofit organization, it's, it's a lot like a lot of people's budgets. Uh, they don't have the luxury of unlimited income. 
Uh, but they can do a lot of creative thinking on the expense side of things. And I don't write about sacrifice or deprivation to get back to that cheapskate level. Mm -hmm. I write about really deciding what's important in your life and getting on with it. And I argue that the spending side of personal finance, uh, which is rarely written about, most of the writing is on the revenue side of personal finance, is at least as important as the revenue side. And here's the good news. It's something that you have a heck of a lot more control over. What's your take on extreme couponing? I have to ask because I got attacked uh, by internet trolls because I went out and I said that you know some forms of couponing can actually be counterproductive and could, in my, in my if you ask me, I think it could call, uh, constitute as being quote unquote cheap in a bad way. In the sense that there are some people out there, and you know who you are, or you know them, who are cutting coupons, um, spending a lot of time, and not really making a much savings in return, and in, along the way are sacrificing time with their families or doing other things that would be more meaningful to them. And so that, to me, is like counterproductive and also perhaps cheap. And I got lots of hate mail over this. What's your take on something that like couponing, which culturally is so popular, but I think could border on this, you know, the bad side of cheap. Yeah. For one of my books, my second book is called The Cheapskate Next Door. I surveyed uh, 320 families, all kind of self-identified to me, mainly fans of my first book that I uh, serve them about their attitudes towards money and life and happiness and religion and the environment and everything. And I, the, the conclusion I came to is there's no one best or right way when it comes to a path to frugality. It's whatever works for you. So on that question of coupon use in general, not necessarily extreme coupon use, I found that about half my cheapskates love their coupons. Uh, you know, maybe they're not uh, extreme couponers in terms of the, that reality show, but they love coupons. The other half, and I put myself in this category because I rarely use a coupon, um, are folks that, uh, you know, I love to cook from scratch. I invent my menus off the best of the best weekly store specials, and I'm not organized enough to really use coupons. So the answer is kind of whatever works best for you, but uh, writing throughout all of my books is the notion that however you choose to be to save money, you need to be honest and forthright and polite in it. For instance, I write a lot about haggling or negotiating for a better price on things. And rule number one is to be a nice guy. Don't be a jerk. Mm -hmm. So there's no one right path uh, to frugality, and you always need to take uh, to take that high ground. Uh, and here's a, here's something that sets what I call my cheapskates aside from what you might think of when you think of a cheapskate. These aren't your pensive penny pinchers. These are a very rare type of American. They actually spend considerably less time shopping than most Americans. For them, shopping is not recreation. It's not an enjoyable exercise at all. They're smart. They're strategic. They do their research in advance. But most of all, they just spend less time in the stores. So these aren't the people who run hither and yon on reality television to, uh, <laughs> you know, to, to stock their entire basement with toilet paper because they had the, the coupon. Because they had a coupon, right. right. Well, Jeff, what would you say is your number one financial philosophy? We talked a lot about your your theories and ideas over um, spending. Uh, what about overall, overarching financial philosophy? Uh, he, let me, uh, my books, um, 
I do pretty well as works of humor. In fact, my first book, The Roadmap to True Riches, was almost released by the publisher, which is Random House, as a book of humor as opposed to a book of economics or personal finance. But they have to release them in a category. Eventually, they decided to release it as personal finance. But um, I try to, you know, um, add a laugh track to what is ultimately some serious messages uh, and advice that I give in the books. And underwriting or underpinning all of my books is this notion that I believe that most Americans, not all Americans, but most Americans would actually be happier and the quality of their life would actually increase if they would only spend and consume less. So again, it's not about deprivation or sacrifice. It's about really discovering the joys in life. And yeah, realizing that a whole lot of those joys in life come without a price tag. How have you in your own life, can you give me a specific example of how this philosophy has played out well in your life? Um, I, for a while, I, you know, I grew up in the Midwest. I'm 57 years old. As I like to say, for an I'm at the worst of all possible age. At 57, I'm too young for Medicare and too old for women to care. <laughs> but That's at, not but true. at any rate, I grew up in the rural Midwest, lower income family. Uh, and even though I spent my career in the nonprofit sector, you know, I, my wife and I sort of got caught up in that rat race of always spending everything we earned and, and maybe even then, then some. And um, we started down that, what I call the money steps of, you know, spend up to your income levels and, and maybe even a little bit more, as we know most Americans do. And then I had a sort of epiphany and I began reflecting on like the lives my grandparents had. And of course, my grandparents raised families during the Great Depression. And what I came to realize was even though they had a lot less money and a lot less stuff that even my wife and I did at that point in our life, they enjoyed a quality of life that was probably better than ours. And that had to do not with money and stuff. It had to do with other things that, that you really can't uh, buy. And so I, I started focusing on, I've written a lot about this, uh, particularly my first book, about what enough is for you. Uh, I, I, I don't want anybody to live in poverty, but I want people to ask themselves the question, what would enough look like for you? Enough money and enough stuff. And everybody's answer is going to be different. I mean, I'm a notorious cheapskate. I'm America's cheapest man. So I tell you in my books, this is how I live. This is enough for me. But I'm not saying you should live like that, but you should certainly ask yourself the question, what would enough look like? And unless you ask yourself that question, and, and please ask it while you're still young, how will you know when you've ever arrived? I mean, money is incredibly relative. What's a lot of money for me is no money at all for somebody else and the other way around. And so that's really what you need to grapple with is that lifestyle quality of life issue. What would enough look like? And in, in the case of my wife and I, we decided fairly early on in our marriage that, you know, we were living pretty good and we could always live at this level. And, you know, we're both college educated and had responsible jobs. And so we established what we call the permanent standard of living. We agreed that we would rather than rush out and spend every pay raise we got, sort of continue to live at that same level. So we bought a, a nice but fairly modest priced house when we were first starting out. We paid it off as quickly as we could, and we still live there 35, 40 years later, and we're happy as can be. And as a result of, of that and, and some other things, uh, at the ripe old age of 47, I was able to just drop out, uh, retire, essentially. I call it being selfishly employed. I have mm -hmm. enough financial freedom to do whatever the heck I want. And sometimes people pay me money for that. And that's good, too. 
That's a great story. I love that you you very much uh, remind me of Warren Buffett in some ways, where he is known to be still living in the home that he purchased with his wife many decades ago, where he raised his kids. He doesn't. He could afford a thousand houses, a much bigger house. He chooses to kind of maintain his lifestyle. Uh, in some ways, I mean, certainly he's advanced his lifestyle in other ways, private jets, things like that. But I think day to day living, he's, you know, he's just a, he's got some very moderate taste and has not really um, taken on fancier things just because he can afford it, uh, which I think is really, yeah. really in- inspiring. Yeah. And, and that's not uncommon among folks like that. Again, I, I don't sort of instruct people on how to become rich. I think Warren's a great individual and he's, if, if I'm like him, I'm like him only minus what, uh, 16 zeros or something <laughs> in terms of, of net worth. I love one of Warren's best lines is, you know, I wear expensive suits. They just look cheap on me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, what would you say is your greatest memory of money growing up as a young cheapskate? <laughs> I, I told that story in the, the very first chapter of my very first book, and it's true, and it, it's sort of fitting since I am the ultimate cheapskate. I have a memory. I could have only just been a few years old, being out in the yard, kind of in a suburban neighborhood with my mom, and I saw a shiny dime in the dirt kind of by the side of the road. And before she could stop me, I ran over to the road, I picked up that shiny dime, and I swallowed it. What? <laughs> and and so I'm I I mean isn't that sort of the perfect and, and, and I swear to God for nurses sometimes when I fall asleep at night I can still taste that kind of metal in oh, my in great. my throat so I mean I was like a human piggy bank I mean that's that's my breeding as a as a as a you know person but money's always interested me not so much in coveting it but the whole notion that it's a trade off of course between your time uh, the the finite time you have here on Earth. And how much money you can earn and what you really want and so on. And and that ultimately evolved into this philosophy that, uh, you know, that uh, obviously, as the old saying goes, that less can often be uh, can be more. And and I'm not saying everybody should lead the kind of lifestyle I'm leading. But again, I think they should ask themselves that question. What is enough? What would what would that look like uh, for you? What would you say is your worst money decision, like something that was just a failure for you, financial failure. I, I like to think I don't make uh, <laughs> too many of them because I'm, I'm, you know, it takes the jaws of life to get my wallet out of my my trousers, as my wife will attest to. But and my wife loves it. What I, I'm always pontificating to my poor wife. We've been married 31 years, uh, or she says three good years, not not all at once. But um, I, I told her the other day, yet again, Denise, whenever I don't listen to my own advice, I'm reminded of how truly brilliant I am. Here's the latest example. I went to write a, my last book, and I fell into to a deep depression, thinking I couldn't possibly write another book. That's the How to Retire the Cheapskate Way. And I decided that I needed to buy a new computer, treat myself to a new computer for this massive book that I was on the that I signed a contract saying I would write. So my philosophy on technology and computers is always to be to buy the absolute most basic piece of technology, the most basic computer, machine, whatever, 
to meet your needs. And all I do is use it as a glorified word processor and I surf the web for research purposes. So I don't need all these bells and whistles. Well, I went to the store to buy that computer and of course some ambitious uh, Best Buy salesman latched onto me and ultimately convinced me to buy a computer that was much bigger, much more expensive, much more elaborate than I knew what I wanted. I liked it because it had a very big screen and my desk is a big piece of plywood and it's it's back far enough and my eyes are giving out. So I do need a big screen. So I said, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to get this. Well, the, the, the salesman said, man, Mr. Yeager, best thing about this is it had a, has a touch screen feature. You can either use a key, keyboard or you can pull up a keyboard on the screen and you can touch it and you can do this and you can do that. And I'm saying, yeah, 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 right. I'll never use that. I mean, I wish I could get this same machine without it. Well, you can't, it's included in it. God knows what kind of price. So anyhow, make a long story somewhat short. I bring the computer home. I work out of my garage in rural Maryland. That's where my little office is. And sometimes my wife goes in after um, I close up for the night. Uh, and she uses the computer, which is fine. We only have the one in the house. But she started doing really weird stuff on the computer. Like I was working on this book, and she would shrink all my manuscript down to a tiny font overnight. Or she was like surfing really weird websites in the middle of the night. And I said, Denise, you know, you got to stop this. I don't care if you use my computer, but don't, you know, don't change my documents. And she said, I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. This went back and forth for a couple of weeks. Finally, I got up early one morning and I went out to my office before it was light. And you know what? Moths and and mosquitoes were flying into that computer screen with enough pressure to do all this stuff on the touchscreen. Wow. They were responsible. So, so here's a perfect example of I spent some amount of more for this technology, not taking my own advice to buy the most basic machine. And what do I get? This problem. Uh, now, the, the follow up to that story is a computer friend of mine said, Jeff, it's real easy to change the setting so that the moths can't change the screen. <laughs> and I said, you know, honestly, they're writing some pretty good stuff now. Yeah. So I said, I think I'll just leave it like it is. <laughs> the foreword written by a moth. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, man, so are you still using this computer or you, you sent it back or what? I think I've probably been through a couple of them by now. Oh, Old my gosh. Models. But I'm sort of an Amish guy when it comes to computer technology. Ain't nothing wrong with the Amish. My husband's from Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and he, where many Amish live, and um, and uh, they're beautiful people. And they, they know how I – should. I would love to interview someone from the Amish country to be on this podcast. I don't think it's permissible. Um, maybe it is. I don't know. But it would be, they, they manage money so interestingly. You know, I've written a lot about the Amish and I've interviewed them for some of my books. I'm intrigued by their lifestyle. Um, uh, it, one of the things I'm intrigued by their lifestyle is, is if you know about the things that they have in their lives and the things that they're forbidden to have in their lives, on the surface of it, it makes no sense at all why they can have this, but not that. The thing I respect about that approach gets back to the point I was making earlier about deciding what enough is for you. For instance, I've never owned a cell phone in my life and nothing awful has ever happened to me. I have nothing against people who own cell phones, but I decided in my case, it was not going to add to the quality of my life. And that wasn't just about costing more. It was also just about not wanting to be so accessible. So I respect that about the Amish that they at least ask themselves, is this going to have a good impact or a bad impact on my life? The other interesting thing about the Amish, of course, is that many of them are extremely wealthy. 
um, they're, they're savvy investors. There are investing firms that specialize just in working with the Amish. And because they have a modest lifestyle, um, that doesn't mean they have a modest income. And, and so many of them are, are extremely wealthy. What would you say is um, your uh, greatest financial moment, like your cheapest moment, in quotes, I put in quotes, that was like just such a great example of uh, all of your philosophies, all of your great genius advice <clears throat> put into practice? Um, I guess it would be, and I don't know if you say a cheap moment, but it, it's a story that I've told uh, quite a num- number of times that I think brings out a couple of interesting points. And it is the little tale of how I became discovered as the ultimate cheapskate. So after 25 years in the nonprofit sector, I dropped out of society. Um, I, I just decided I would do my own thing. And if, if, uh, if I earn some money at that, great. If not, I just do it. So I start to do some writing, a combination of, of sort of humor and practical life for spending and consuming less. But, you know, right, as you well know, writing is a very hard way to make a living. And I'm selling a little bit of work for a nickel a word here and there. At any rate, Michelle Singletary, the, the nationally syndicated columnist for the Washington Post, ran a contest. This was about eight years ago. Uh, looking for the cheapest person in America. And, of course, my wife said, Jeff, you have to enter. You're clearly America's cheapest man. And so uh, the prize was 50 bucks. I was really psyched. I entered the contest, and about a month later, she announced the winners. And you know what? I didn't win. Oh. In fact, I, I wasn't even listed as a runner-up. And I was only uh, discouraged in that I had sent her what I thought was some of my best and funniest writing and apparently didn't make the grade. About a week later, I got an email absolutely out of the blue from the NBC Today show. Mm. And they said, first first sentence, I almost deleted his spam because I'd never had any contact with him. First sentence was, you don't know us, but we think you should have won the $50 prize. It turned out Michelle Singletary was going to be a guest on their show. They were doing a segment on frugality. And they asked her if she knew of anyone who does more of a humorous take on this. Uh, (laughs) And she said, well, I ran this contest. This guy entered. He didn't win for a variety of reasons. But my staff and I thought his writing was really funny. So they called me up and did a little interview that had me on the show. And that's how I got my start. I've been on the sh- Today Show a couple dozen times. Now, so that's how we sh- we share that in common. I got my start being on the Today Show. Um, it's quite the platform. I'm curious though, why didn't why weren't you selected when you finally met Michelle backstage? Did you ask her like why? If I'm if I'm the hilarious uh, I, it's cheapskate, a, it's why did I? It's an ongoing it's an ongoing dispute between us. I claim she still owes me the fifty bucks. <laughs> so you know the moral of the story is. Um, if I had not sort of pulled the plug on my nine to five job and gone off and, and done my own thing, that never would have happened to me. And on that Sunday, when I entered her contest, if you'd asked me what's the best thing that could happen, I would have said with absolute enthusiasm, I could win 50 bucks. Well, you know, I didn't, but all of this other stuff followed from that. Right. So I'm actually working on kind of a vague idea for a new book that has to do with the value of pursuing opportunities and spontaneity in our society. It seems I'm not saying that everybody can launch their career and the writers can launch their career in the way I just outlined. But I think every day there are so many opportunities that that stare us all in the face. But we live in a culture which increasingly frowns on the idea of taking advantage of those opportunities. You know, you're on this track. You're not on that track. You're on this track. 
And and I just think uh, life's a heck of a lot more fun, and and you might uh, really have a blast by being a bit more opportunistic. It's true. You know, I think that in all of our lives, we anticipate the quote-unquote success happening in a certain way, that it's going to be in a certain way very linear, or we anticipate things in a very, um, you know, we just have it in our head, like how things are going to turn out. And just because it doesn't turn out exactly how you envision doesn't mean that it doesn't qualify as a success, that it does, that it won't at the end lead you to ultimately where you still wanted to end up, um, which is kind of exciting, you know, you just, but also scary. You have to allow, allow yourself to be, uh, to, to be open to all of these new and uh, sometimes frightful experiences when you're on your own. Right. Amen. And, you know, it, and it seems to me like even during the course of my lifetime, uh, people are locked in more and more to that specific track. And I'm not saying that planning and thinking and, and so on is bad, but I've seen more people that when they have that, an opportunity confronts them, no matter how small it seems. I mean, imagine in this case, I mean, um, I had an opportunity to do a little something on the Today Show, but then to my credit, I managed to parlay it into a career of writing books for Random House and other work. Um, I, th- I think that there's something to be said for recognizing those opportunities and having um, the chutzpah to really act on them rather than say, no, that's not the course that I'm on. Right. Or I don't know enough about this and so it can't possibly be a good idea. And and your friends and family saying, you're going to do what? Right. Oh, well, you that's... Know, you're going to, you know, you're going to leave that job because somebody said you could teach English as a second language in Japan. I mean, you're going to do that? <laughs> I mean, that's crazy. Yeah. Well, well, it happens. You just have to have compassion for these people and still do what you want to do. What would you say is your number one habit, financial habit, Jeff, that helps keep you... Uh, you know, in charge of your money and, and feeling like you have secure finance, finances? Um, I, I think it's real simple. I mean, my advice is very old school, but it's right if I don't say so myself. <laughs> I mean, you uh, may. I, I, beg, I beg on avoiding debt. I don't believe any of this about the necessity of debt we have. Um, and it boils down to living within your means, always live below your means whenever you can. And that pearl of wisdom that my grandfather taught me, if you can't afford to pay for it now, you simply can't afford it. Mm-hmm. If you can't afford to pay for it now, you, sim- you simply can't afford it. So, I mean, I think it's as simple as that. I think there's no such, such thing as good debt. There's only bad debt and worse debt. Um, it's, we've gone crazy on the consumption side. In America, there was a study by uh, bankloans.com that you may have seen that, that projects that the average American today will spend more than $600,000 in interest during the course of their lifetime. I mean, how, how is that making anybody happy uh, other than bankers? I mean, so just a question about that philosophy. If you can't afford it today because perhaps you have too much on your plate, you're not making enough money, but can you hopefully afford it in the future if things change? Can you still keep that goal? Um, yeah, and, and let me and let me clarify because I did a lot of polling of those 320 cheapskate families I mentioned before. 
And I mean, they're very unusual in that they loathe debt. They equate death to having a disease or being in prison. The yoke of debt for these Americans, these rare Americans, still weighs very heavily upon them. It makes them extremely uncomfortable. Having said that, they they do believe in the the dream of traditional home ownership. So, in obviously, in the vast majority of cases, they need to borrow money in the form of, home of a, form of a home mortgage. They buy homes which are about 75% less than the, the total they could qualify for. I mean, most people, they go to the bank, they, the bank says, we'll loan you 300000 and what kind of home do you go shopping for? Well, a $300,000 mm-hmm. home, not the cheapskates. They're shopping at 75%. They're staying in that home for a very long period of time. They're paying off their mortgage as quickly as they can. They're ignoring all conventional wisdom that says, don't prepay your mortgage. Uh, they're getting that debt off their backs as quickly as they can. They're loath to borrow money for anything else in life. If they have to, if they must, they again place the highest priority on paying off that debt as quickly as possible. One of my chief skates told me, you know, Jeff, if my car conks out tomorrow and I only have $1,200 in my savings account, I can guarantee you I'm going to go shopping for a $1,200 car. I'm not going to go shopping for a car where $1,200 is a down payment. I'm going to buy at that level. And, you know, it sounds so simple, but it's really very practical, and it makes you so much happier. A majority of Americans will go to their graves owing money on their home or debt secured against their home. I, I, I always feel like I should just say I rest my case at that point. How can living under that kind of yoke of debt your whole life here on earth make you any happier? Right. Amen to that. So now, Jeff, let's 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 move on to some so money fill in the blanks. This has been a really profound conversation, and you may not have assumed that if you are as a listener clicking on this particular episode and seeing the title "Jeff Yeager Ultimate Cheapskate," you might think, "Well, we're all we're going to talk about today is couponing and um, stealing Wi-Fi from your neighbor." But actually, um, I love that you have really redefined cheapism in our culture, and you've been on this crusade for so long and, and doing such an, an important job and leading by example, let's have some fun now and end this interview with some hypothetical fill in the blanks, shall we? Uh, Fire away. Okay. Let's say you won the lottery tomorrow. Let's say the ultimate cheapskate won a hundred million bucks. The first thing I would do is um, I, I would travel even more. I write a lot about travel. My wife and I have traveled to 40 different countries. We generally travel overseas a couple of months out of the year. Um, and that's because we're not, not because we're rich. It's because we have no debt. Um, and we travel very inexpensively. We generally can travel for less than we can stay home. So if I had even more money, I would travel even more extensively, but I would not change the way in which we travel. Uh, we travel, uh, we, we like to travel like local people live where we go. Uh, that said, I also write uh, a lot about charitable activity. I, of course, spent my career in the nonprofit uh, sector, and I found, surprise, 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 that the cheapskates I interviewed for my book tend to give twice as much to charity as the average American. My wife and I give about 20% of our income to a variety of of charity. So I would definitely beef that up. Beyond a certain point of enough, why do I need more money? Right. The one thing that I spend on that makes my life easier or better is? 
Yeah, I kind of have some fun with that in some of my books, because oftentimes I get a version of that question, which is, what's the one thing that, uh, (laughs) what's the one thing you're not afraid to spend more money on? A a notorious cheapskate neighbor of mine once took me to task and questioned my credentials as a cheapskate when he saw that every couple of years I paid a guy to pump out my septic tank. He, He cleans his out with a bucket himself. Wow. No. So... So, you know, I mean, I don't consider 80 or 180 bucks every five years to get it pumped out to be a luxury. Yeah. He does. And that, that neighbor, by the way, always wonders why we don't invite him to dinner. <laughs> You'd be purelling his way out to the dinner table. I'd, I'd be like. Right. Um, another another cheesecake friend of mine would ask what he spurges on. I thought I had a great answer mm-hmm. for a guy like me, which is every t- five or ten years when he has a colonoscopy, he does pay the extra <laughs> money for the anesthesiologist. Oh, okay. Because, you know, you can usually opt in or out of that. He said, that's that's money I don't mind paying. That's investing in yourself. Good job. Yeah. Um, well, I got to ask you then, what's your biggest guilty pleasure? Um, I, I suppose to most people, it would appear to be travel. When people hear the cheapskate, they think I'm somebody who's hunkered down in the mobile home somewhere and hasn't, hasn't seen the world. And I, I, at some point, I want to write a travel book. All my books have a lot of advice about cheapskate travel. And I mean, it starts from the premise that I don't know why we're put here on Earth. But I suspect implicit in the fact that we are here on Earth is some obligation to get out there and see it and meet the people and see it. And you don't have, my contention is you don't have to have a lot of money to do that. You do it within your means. And in fact, my contention is also is if you spend a lot of money, like on luxury travel, you're not, you're defeating the whole purpose of it. You're not meeting real people and having real, uh, real experiences. So yeah, people say, Hey, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a cheapskate. He's traveled 35 countries, spends months abroad at a time. I mean, if we if we travel abroad and rent out our house, we'll make money on the trip. Right. Of the way we travel. One thing I wish I had known about money growing up is um, that that lesson that I've mentioned uh, twice, I think, so far in the interview, but I'll mention it again because I think it's so important: is that money is relative. That what's a lot of money. For you is very little money to someone else and the other way around. So the so the the thing I wish I'd learned even earlier in life was to ask yourself the question of how much do I really want? How much do I really need? What would enough look like for me? In my first book I call it slaying your enoughosaurus. <laughs> coming up with that dollar figure, coming up with that lifestyle. And everybody's answer is going to be different. And I don't care what it is, but most people plod through life never asking themselves that question. And of course, if you don't ask yourself the question, how will you know when and if you've ever arrived and you can, as I say, call off the war for more? Absolutely. Slaying off your enoughosaurus. I, I love that. That's such a great expression because uh, it is a dinosaur with probably six heads. Now, last but not least, Jeff, I'm so money because? I guess I would say I'm so money because I spend money and consume things wisely. So therefore, things don't consume me. Love it. Jeff, what are you up to these days? You've, you've done so much. I mean, I, wanna, I, I wanted to wrap here, but I'm actually curious, what, what's next for you? 
Um, you know, I'm as we speak, I'm here at my parents' home in Ohio. My wife and I. Are, unfortunately, my father passed away three weeks ago, rather unexpectedly. And my mother's in the final stages of Alzheimer's disease, and so my wife and I are staying here to care for her in their home. Uh, it's a very sad time for our family, but it's also a very precious time. And I, I'm thankful that I have the freedom, and not just the financial freedom, but other types of freedom that allows me to do that at this point in my life. So my career, such as it is, is on is on hold. I hope to write more books. I have been doing a web show for AARP called The Cheap Life with Jeff Yeager that I'm really proud of. There are about 100 episodes on YouTube of that show. Uh, but right now is, is a different time for me. Uh, I have one opportunity to take care of my parents during this period in their life, and that's what I'm doing. Well, that sounds um, really, really special, and we're, I'm very sad to hear about your father, but I know that um, it, it's also, like you say, it's bittersweet, you know, Betty, being able to spend time with your mom now. And um, that's what life's about, right? You work hard and you make the good decisions so that when times like these arrive, you have the freedom to do what you want to do. Yeah. And almost everything I've talked to you about uh, on this show has been wisdom from my family, primarily from my parents who've had very whole, uh, whole lives, traveled widely. We didn't have a tele color television until everybody else in the neighborhood was in their second or third one. But by God, we, we traveled and we lived right. They are folks who I like to say know the secret of living every day as if it's your last because one day you'll be right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that message with us, Jeff, and for taking the time uh, right now to be with us. And we really appreciate it. Everybody check out Jeff Yeager. We'll put all of your information over at SoMoneyPodcast.com and we'll send you some visitors. How about that? Great. Thanks. Stay cheap. Stay cheap. If you'd like to learn more about Jeff, his website is ultimatecheapskate.com. He's on Twitter at Jeff Yeager. We've got all this info at somoneypodcast.com, where you can also find the transcript and comments from this episode and all previous episodes. And I want to hear from you. Submit your question about money, work, or life at somoneypodcast.com. Click on Ask Farnoosh, and there's a really good chance that I will answer it this weekend. And as a reminder, if you'd like to win a free 15-minute money session with me, hop onto iTunes and leave a review for this show. Every Saturday, I select one new reviewer to get a 15-minute money blitz with me, and I've been doing this for now several months. I've had the great privilege of getting to connect with some of you one-on-one, and I just love it. So if this is of interest to you, leave a review, and hopefully we will connect. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you to my guest, Jeff Yeager. I hope everybody on this podcast has a so money day.